Let us turn now to Psalm 44 in the Psalter. We'll look especially upon the first eight verses, but I will refer to the the, the rest of the psalm a couple by a couple verses that are found there to round out the sermon. Uh, but turn with me to for, Psalm 44. I'll read verses one through eight. Hear now the word of the Lord. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and days of old. You drove out the nation with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the, uh, the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did they own and uh, save them. But it was your right arm, your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies. And have put shame, uh, and and put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever, Selah. May God's blessing be upon these verses. Now the title of the message is uh, the Reformation of Christ, and uh, I'm saying the the Reformation Christ. I'm I'm calling him the arm of the Lord. I'm noticing him as the arm of the Lord in the Old Testament. Because when we think of the arm of the Lord, we think of uh, of our arms, which are strong. Sometimes people who are weightlifters will put their arms up like this and flex their muscles, and you can see their biceps uh, moving. And we know that when we, whatever we do in life, that our arms are part of our great strength. Our, our legs and our thighs are important to hold us up and to propel us forward if we're plowing or something like that. But our arms are also so important to um, throw the bales of hay or to do this and that. We cannot do without the strength of our arms. And so the Bible calls us to see that uh, the Lord is portrayed or a metaphor for the Lord in the Old Testament is the arm of the Lord. And um, I've divided up the sermon in terms of three parts present in the Old Testament, that the arm of the Lord, that the, the Reformation Christ was present in the Old Testament, that he is presented as the strength of God's mercy in verses 5 through 8 in terms of his word and work, sola scriptura and sola fide. And lastly, that that the Lord who appears in the Old Testament is, uh, and the people that are affected by the Lord are prestigious. There are great things that are spoken about them, and yet they are also pummeled or struck down or troubled by their lives in Christ. And so let's look here to the first point, that is the, that the idea that the Lord was present in the Old Testament that, that Jesus, as it were, even though the people did not understand him in the Old Testament, 
Jesus is like a specter or like a spiritual force which is seen in the pages of the Old Testament rising up and, be, and becoming or personifying the strength of God, the strength of the Lord, that through his arm that the Lord would accomplish much. And we see this in Psalm 44, the first part, for God speaks of in the very first and second verse of driving out the nations with your hand. The psalmist celebrates this idea that God would be active in history and would drive out the people with his hand. Now, today, we've been making more and more about it the last few years, about how the church today uh, focuses almost exclusively and inwardly upon a spiritual growth within our bodies, within our souls. And when we talk about Israel or when we talk about the growth of Israel, we tend to focus more upon that sort of thing. But if we look at the Old Testament, we see that God does the spiritual work in the lives of people, but he does it in a very outward way. In other words, it was not just done with monks or priests who were hidden away in some uh, uh, monastery or something like that, some Old Testament monastery. But God works with his people in very outward ways. He raises up a whole nation. In other words, he works out the spirituality of the people through their, through their six-day lives. They had, to re, they had to erect a nation based upon a tribal or state uh, growth and organization, and then, uh, then with a national idea or a national entity before them. That was the nation of Israel. And so each tribe took their place, but they took their place within this uh, political process. And God was working out the sanctification of his people through this very concrete life. They, they had to make war upon people. People were making war upon them because of the fact that God was planting his faith in a very earthy, tangible way here up in this world. Now, we, our New Testament church has lost this in so many ways. We, we act as if the, the thousands of years, the millennia that took place before the coming of Christ were not really significant. Our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came preaching, he came preaching about the kingdom of God. What was he talking about? Today we interpret the kingdom of God as, a very, as almost exclusively a spiritual thing. It's the, the rule of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. But this was not the way it was in the Old Testament. This is not what Christ, when Christ came and spoke about the kingdom of God, he was talking about the rule that he had that he had been born into as the Messiah for Israel. And so, as we we can, the, the Old Testament should really inform our faith today. We should not be so insular, or we should not just focus upon the spiritual dimensions of our faith. We should focus upon that, that faith as it was developed in the Old Testament. And when we think of the Old Testament, we think of David and Noah and Ezekiel and Elijah and the great prophets. And we think of the Philistines uh, fighting against the Philistines. And we think of the Assyrians and the uh, Syrians and the uh, Babylonians. And all of these the great affairs of life which these people, because they were spiritually converted and, uh, and developed, 
were able to deal with and they planted a real nation upon this earth. And now with the coming of Christ, that nation has been internationalized. So uh, Psalm 44 begins that way. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days. In the days of old, these were not just spiritual deeds, but these were deeds having to do with real bodies and real lives. So the fathers told the, their children about the deeds that were done. Verse 2, you drove out the nations with your hand, with your hand. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did, they, nor did their own arms save them, but it was your right hand, uh, hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them. At the time of the Reformation, they were cruising along in a kind of sleep-like <coughs> mindset and mode where the church had not changed much in hundreds of years. Yes, there was a Christendom around them, but they didn't think that much about what that meant. They certainly didn't think that much about their role in Christendom. But in Psalm 44, it focuses upon the spiritual battle, and it focuses upon that using the earthly metaphor of this nation that struggled for their existence. And in the midst of that struggle, what is going to gain them the victory but the strength of God's own arm? Now, in point two, we focus upon what that arm meant in terms of uh, the most significant spiritual strength, and we see that it focuses upon uh, both the word and the spirit. But the psalmist here in Psalm 44 is calling out, uh, pointing out, first of all, that it's the arm of the Lord that is, um, that is so strong and so significant. And it wasn't too long ago, uh, last I mean, two years ago, where I had a sermon on the arm of the Lord, and I brought your mind to many of the scriptures uh, having to do with the arm of the Lord in the Old Testament. Because I want you to almost see uh, the, the, this, the, uh, this idea of uh, a strong man arising out of Israel's uh, loins. A strong man arising out of the, the depths of history and out of the chapters of history of Israel's past. The idea that this strong man would bring a greater victory to Israel than ever before. And when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled this. He is the strong man who came. The, the reason we are sitting here today is because the strong man affected our fathers and our forefathers. And then our lives, where he brought us to faith from the, the, uh, the sleepiness that we were involved. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. God says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So when the Old Testament people saw this, the uh, salvation of the Lord in terms of the breaking down of their slavery to the Egyptians, their freedom from the Egyptians and the slavery, when they saw that this arm of the Lord had entered into their lives, and made such a terrific impact upon them, then they would see, this, the, the, they would have an insight into the doctrine of God, into theology. Their earthly salvation would help them to understand their spiritual salvation. Exodus 6, that was Exodus 6, 6 through 7. Psalm 3, 
7 and 8. It says, Arise, the, the psalmist calls upon the Lord, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheap cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Uh, Psalm 44 that we read today, it's speaking about the arm of the Lord. Psalm 89, verses 13 and 14. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, and high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. That's Psalm 89, verses 13 through 14. And then we get into the New Testament. And in Luke 151, uh, God says he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. So the apostle or the, the, um, the um, uh, teacher Luke <clears throat> sees an identification between Christ, the coming of Christ, and the arm of the Lord. John 12, 37 through 38. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so here the, the arm of the Lord is the equivalent of the gospel in John 12, 37 through 38. Uh, Psalm 58, verse 10 says, The righteous shall rejoice when they see the, the, the vengeance of the Lord which is identified when the arm of the Lord begins to stir. And uh, in Revelation 19, 1 and 2, the very beginning of the book of Revelation, it says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and laud and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants, the blood of his servants shed uh, by her. Revelation 19, verses 1 and 2. So the Lord in the scriptures looks on the day of salvation and the, the hope of the Lord as being a time in history when the Lord would rise up out of the out of his stupor and rise up out of his inactivity, and and show the strength of his arm, and the reformer, the reformers saw this as uh, when they saw their time in the revival that happened at the time of the Reformation, they saw that as a stirring up of the Lord and a stirring up of the arm of the Lord. Now, as we look at this uh, psalm and we ask ourselves, the we we see where he says in verse three. The nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. As we think of this in the light of the Reformers, this was one of the things that just struck Luther like a thunderclap as he came to see that it was uh, our Lord's accomplishment of righteousness and our Lord's dying, uh, of, uh, dying for our sin. These two great acts of his, or two great works of his, enabled his people to be saved. 
before the wrath of the Father, before the righteous judgment of God the Father, so that they, so that Luther came to see that there was be nothing that could be held against his people. There, there would be nothing that would hold them in the captivity, uh, a spiritual captivity of their lives. They had their whole lives up to that point in their lives when they heard the gospel. When they heard the gospel, it was like the arm of the Lord showed itself. The arm of the Lord showed its strength. And so that as they looked upon the righteousness of Christ, and the, the, the accomplishments of Christ of doing righteousness, that righteousness which we would need to pass judgment with God. And as they saw the work of, of uh, atonement that he made to die for our sin, and as they preached this message, the reformers saw that this was the strength of the Lord. The, the medieval church believed that they would work their way to, to, to salvation through doing many acts of contrition, through making pilgrimages, by lighting candles in the churches to honor the Lord. The reformers broke through this. The arm of the Lord revealed itself. They saw that these things were nothing but the work that God had done. What, what was the work that God had done? It was the work that Christ had done. And so the Christ of the Reformation is this powerful uh, demonstration by the Son of God, by the Word of God, for uh, what would take place. And uh, uh, the whole culture of that age was changed because of the gospel and because of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, when um, uh, I pointed out earlier in the in the message that, or in the in the service, that from the time of Knox's coming uh, to uh, faith, uh, that uh, it, it it happened relatively quickly. Uh, when he was 25 years old, he was, um, or when he was 30 years old, he was ordained. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 25 years old, he was ordained. And um, one of the really neat things about it was that he was, he was tutored by a man named um, John Major uh, at, at uh, St. Andrews University. Uh, Knox had come from a rather obscure place in East Lothian, east of Edinburgh. It was a small village. Uh, he had shown some academic prowess, and so he had his family had sent him to uh, St. Andrew University. At that time, if you showed any kind of academic ability, the, one of the few places that that could be worked out was in the priesthood heading to become a priest within the church. So that was the course upon which they sent Knox. Uh, he, was, he was taught by this man named John Major uh, when he was about, he finished his studies about 25 years old. And uh, John Major was not a flaming reformer, but he, he seems to have been touched by the doctrines of the Reformation. He was the outstanding intellectual of that day in Scotland, who happened to be at St. Andrews and who happened to get the student uh, uh, John Knox. When Knox, just five years later, when Knox was ordained in, uh, in St. Andrews to become the pastor of that nascent church there, uh, Knox had arrived at the castle uh, simply as a tutor 
of a young man. He was relatively unknown. He was a tutor of these two young men, and he had been the bodyguard to George Wishart. It was while he was the bodyguard to Wishart that he heard Wishart preach. And it seems like the zeal and the uh, the fire of Wishart's life caught hold of Knox. And the things that he'd begun to learn from John Major all of a sudden were crystallized in his mind, in his heart. And so it wasn't that he grew to approximate some great leader uh, that, that uh, had worked before him. He had not yet met Calvin. He had not yet been in Geneva. He was a simple Scotsman who had learned about the, some of these doctrines that Luther was teaching. But as he, as he saw the zeal of Wishart, and of course Wishart was, was martyred just a year later uh, by Cardinal Beaton there in St. Andrews, but as Knox, as Knox felt the warmth of the passion of George Wishart, it changed his life. And he he went from being kind of a, a, a regular guy like all of us feel we are to a great leader in Scotland at that time. And so he went from uh, obscurity to an anointing in a relatively short, of t- short period of time. And where did this come from? You see, it came from the Lord. It came directly from the Lord. The arm of the Lord exerted itself upon his heart and his soul. In a sense, in a great sense, it was just him and the Lord. You see some of the same phenomenon in the life of Luther, in the life of Calvin. The life of Calvin, Calvin doesn't give a great display of his conversion. He was, uh, he was a man who began to be affected by the doctrines of Luther when he was in school. And uh, then at a certain point when he went to Geneva uh, and uh, heard Pharrell and uh, uh, thought about these things himself, more and more the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God, got a hold of him and changed him. He excited him with the gospel of Christ. He excited him with this, the, the story of the arm of the Lord, the idea that Christ was his strength, not the candles, not the priests, not the great cathedrals, but it was the Lord who was his strength. And where was that strength? Where was the arm of the Lord seen most clearly? It was seen in this brave one, this son of man, son of God, who came into the world and fought against all of the people of that day, all of the great teachers of that day, the people like the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, who would come and say, why did you, why do you say to me that I must be born again? These men were spiritually dead. But God flexed his strength. God showed the power of his arm. And he began to awaken people and bring them to to new life in him. So the the two things that were the most important for uh, these men and the two things that best fulfill or show themselves as being the works of the arm of the Lord are the word of God and the spirit of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. And the Reformers talked about the Spirit and the Word. The Word and the Spirit. And so um, John Knox, he began to learn about the Word of God, but then under the ministry of Wishart, and that short time, and it was only a year, really, that he was with Wishart, but in that short time, as Wishart preached the Word of God, the preaching of Wishart uh, caught the soul of Knox alive. And um, 
and uh, uh, it more and more uh, manifested itself until this man that went from a simple uh, teacher uh, to a great pastor uh, seemed like overnight. Uh, when he came to the, when he, the, when Luther and he, he had two students, you know, there were two Protestant lairds that wanted their, their boys to be educated in the faith. And so he gave, he gave Knox, the, he heard that Knox was a, a good teacher. So he gave his sons over to John Knox and, uh, and he began to tutor them. Uh, when the Protestants took hold of the castle there in St. Andrews, uh, after Beaton had been, um, assassinated. Uh, Knox, Knox talked about it with the fathers, and the, the fathers actually wanted him to take the sons there into that hotbed of the Reformation, into the castle, which, was, which could have been uh, assaulted at any time by the forces of, the, of Rome and the forces of old Scotland, the medieval Scotland. But the, the fathers... <coughs> encouraged him to take the children there into the castle. You'd think it would be, uh, they'd, be they'd be more afraid of the danger, but they, their hearts had been warmed by these great doctrines, and they wanted Scotland to be changed. And so they said, no, take our sons there to the castle. And so Knox went there with the, with the boys. They were teenagers at the time. And uh, I don't know how you would like your, whether you would think you're, you'd trust your children to uh, a teacher like Knox, but the, these parents did. And so Knox went there with the boys, and he arrived not as a well-known teacher, not as a person who uh, had any kind of a record or any kind of fame. He just went there as a, the man who the Lord had worked on and the Lord had taught over these few years. But within a very short time, just teaching the boys and comment, making comment where he could, uh, the chaplain of the garrison there, uh, was was uh, impressed with Knox, and so he was the one that pressed upon the congregation in St. Andrews that they should call Knox as their pastor. And it just, uh, you've, you've heard me tell the story before about how when uh, he was preaching on the, uh, the idea, his name was John Ruff, and I, I suppose he had rough sermons. And he was preaching this series of sermons on how the congregation ought to elect their own pastors there in Scotland. And at the end of the, at the, end of the last sermon that he had on this, and of course Knox had been listening, at the end of the sermon, <laughs> the end of the sermon he, he pointed to Knox and he made the public announcement then that the people had elected him to be their pastor. That was the, that was the point at which Knox ran out of the back of the church. He couldn't conceive of himself being in that place, the, the, the pastor of one of the only Protestant churches in Scotland at the time. He just couldn't conceive of it. There, there's a transition going on here in his life between just a every man kind of Christian and all of a sudden having this mantle of leadership foist upon him. But within the week, he was convinced. And one of the things that convinced him the most was how foreign the idea appeared to his own heart. He could not see himself doing this. And so he was awestruck by the fact that the church had elected him in secret to be in this role. And so he saw it as the action and the work of the Lord, and he embraced it and took it upon himself and became synonymous with the Reformation in Scotland. 
So uh, the arm of the Lord was present in the Old Testament. We see it here in these verses. Uh, and the arm of the Lord presented, uh, presented unto Knox and to the people of that day the strength of God's mercy in terms of his word, his gospel written, and his, his Holy Spirit uh, directing the people to cast themselves upon the, the Christ of the word. And, uh, and so we see the, the tremendous strides that were made there around this man, John Knox. Now, the third point of the, the sermon is that this was a prestigious thing, and yet the people of God, as soon as they embraced it, and you can see it in Luther's life and Knox's life, as soon as he embraced the gospel, and he embraced the idea that Christ was the arm of the Lord, and that Christ had manifested himself in history, and Christ had manifested himself again in history to Luther, and to Calvin, and now to Knox. And so, but as soon as he, as soon as he embraced this in the castle there at St. Andrews on the edge of the sea, as soon as he embraced it, within a few months after that, uh, the French galleys came and bombarded the castle and took the men in the castle captive. And Knox became a, uh, a galley slave for a year and a half, rowing about the English Channel and the North Atlantic, north of the English Channel, to do the bidding of uh, their captors. The, the galleys in the, of that day were, uh, I, I compare it in my own mind to a kind of turtle shell. You know, the turtle lives within the shell, and um, the shell is his protection from the, the, uh, the elements and the sea and wherever else the turtle, the pond, wherever else the turtle goes. Well, these men that were galley slaves uh, this was a form of servitude that was, was long known. Uh, when, when our Marine Corps made war upon the pirates of Tripoli, it was upon the galley slaves of those days. Many, many, there were many Europeans that were and had been enslaved by the Arabs as they made forays into the continent and, and put men on the galleys. The galleys became their home. Like, like the turtle lives inside the shell. They, 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 they were chained to the oars. Uh, they could not move when they had to go to the bathroom. They just leaned their rear ends out over the back of the, the bench and pooped in the, uh, pooped in the trough there. If you've ever been in a barn, an old-fashioned barn, now, nowadays everything is so uh, automated. But in the old-fashioned barns, there were always these troughs or channels in the cement where the, the animals would uh, defecate and poop. And, they, the, and uh, then the farmers would come by with their, with their trowels and with their shovel or the shovels and, and, uh, and water and, and move the stuff out. It would flow then into a drain and then it would be, go to the manure piles. And these, these kind of the, the sometimes, sometimes ponds of manure, sometimes the manure wagon. But that was the way the farmer filled, uh, cleaned his barn. But in the galleys, there was nothing like this. Uh, the most that might be done once in a while, once in a while, water would be sloshed down these these channels behind the men where they were sitting, and they would eat on the benches whatever small amounts of food they had, and they would very often die on the benches. the The life of a person that was committed on, as a galley slave was not that many years—a year and a half, two years, two and a half years. And so, when Knox was captured. Uh, he had just come to faith himself in a strong 
and virulent way, and then he was captured. And so that's why Psalm 6 affected him so seriously, because in Psalm 6, um, the, the, the words of the scripture talk about how um, the, the, the person who was the, the believer was persecuted. I was touched by reading in this, uh, uh, um, this study of Psalm 6 <clears throat> called The Exposition of the Sixth Psalm by, um, by um, <clears throat> Knox that uh, uh, Psalm 6 says, Lord, in thy wrath rebuke me not, nor in thy hot rage chasten me. Lord, pity me, for I am weak. Heal me, for my bones vexed be. My soul is also vexed sore, but Lord, how long stay wilt thou make? Return, O Lord, my soul set free. O save me for thy mercy's sake. Because those that, that deceased are, of thee shall no remembrance have. And who is he that will to thee give praises lying in the grave? I with my groaning weary am. I also all the night my bed have caused to swim. With tears my couch uh, I have watered. Mine eye consumed with grief grows old because of all mine enemies. Now, I, when I read this psalm years ago and knew that this was that this was Knox's favorite, favorite psalm, I, I thought to myself, why? This seems like such a depressing psalm. But that's because Knox's life was a figure of this or a picture of this. He had come to faith and now he'd been reduced to being a galley slave with no expectation of relief. Simply rowing, putting all of his muscles along with the other hundreds of men in, the, in that galley, rowing the craft about the cold North Sea. Well, Knox says, the fourth part of this psalm, um, I admit, I omit until I have great op greater opportunity, for it does not much appertain to the spiritual cross, but it is, as it were, a prophecy spoken against all such as rejoice at the troubles of God's elect. The, end, the fourth part of which he was talking about, the very last verse of Psalm uh, Psalm 6 says, Shamed and sore vexed be all my foes, shamed and back turned suddenly. So <clears throat> the psalmist, as he prays, uh, Psalm, Psalm verse 7, he says, Mine eye consumed with grief grows old because of all mine enemies. Hence from me wicked workers all, for God hath heard my weeping cries. So the, the, great, the great hope of Psalm 6 to the psalmist is that as he cries out to the Lord for help and for deliverance, he knows that God would hear his cries. Though God had not delivered yet, he knew that God had ears and that God could hear him and that his cries for help, just like the cries of Israel in Egypt, would not go, would not be in vain. And so in verse 9 it says, God hath my supplication heard, my prayer received graciously. And then the last verse says, shamed and sore vexed be all my foes, shamed and back turned suddenly. In other words, they would be delivered. He would be delivered. The people of God would be delivered, even though they were in such a place of degradation and persecution. And so Knox says here in the study of Psalm 6, he says, this last part of the psalm was like a prophecy, he says, 
spoken against all such as rejoice at the troubles of God's elect, who assuredly shall be confounded and suddenly brought to shame when the Lord shall hear the voices of his sorely afflicted. Now, dearly beloved in our Savior Jesus Christ, seeing that the spiritual cross is proper for the children of God, seeing that it is given to us as a most effectual medicine, as well as to remove diseases, as to plant our souls in, in our souls most notable virtues, such as humility, mercy, contempt of ourselves, and continual remembrance of our own weakness and imperfections. And seeing that you have had most evident signs that this medicine has wrought in you, a part of all the premises. Receive it thankfully from your Father's hand, what trouble soever it brings with it. And albeit the, the flesh a grudge or, um, or uh, suffer, yet let the Spirit rejoice, steadfastly looking for deliverance, and assuredly you shall, be obtain, you shall obtain according to the goodwill and promises of him who cannot deceive, to whom be glory forever and ever, before his congregation. Amen. And so uh, Knox took these, these faint uh, but significant uh, promises here in Psalm 6 of the suffering. He takes that as a great encouragement and a great, um, uh, a great blessing. Uh, now in this third point, I, I say it, it's, pretty, it's prestigious and yet pummeled. And so we can see how pummeled Knox was in his life. We can see how Luther and Calvin both bore their stripes, the, the persecutions and the strife that, that, that circled their lives. Uh, Luther was famous in one of his, uh, uh, one of his uh, <clears throat> uh, times, there was a prospect of going to Leipzig to go to a, a debate there and a defense of the faith. And so uh, there were a number of his friends who were very concerned because uh, Duke George was one, was his worst enemy and Duke George was the one that was had, um, had power at Leipzig. And they said, don't go because Duke, Duke George will surely kill you. And Luther Luther's answer was, he said, I would go to Leipzig if it were to rain. Duke George's for nine days together, and each Duke George was nine times as fierce as this one that we know is. Uh, so uh, Luther was just utterly persuaded that despite the per persecution that God would protect him and that God would lead him through such trials to great uh, occasions of victory. Uh, so um, uh, Knox, through the life of Jesus, the life of Knox, the life of Luther, they saw the, the wonderful blessings and prestige of the gospel and the work that, that God showed when he flexed his muscle, the muscle of the gospel. They saw that, but they were also pummeled, but it did not, uh, did not bring them down. It did not crush them because they were incensed and inspired by hoping in the Lord. And in that time, though there were almost no antecedent causes before the Reformation that would lead people to think that there was a great work in the, in the, in the, in, in, in the works, yet the Reformation took place. It, it was born in that day by the power of God. The right hand of the Lord again showed valiantly 
and the Reformation took place. As I, as I look at our day, brothers and sisters, I see a day which, again, is like a desert. Those, those, those few of us that gather at churches like this, we, we rejoice greatly amongst ourselves. But do we not yearn for great days of greater blessing? Days of greater strength, days of greater demonstration. I think that we do. And I believe that as we, as we celebrate this Reformation Day and as we rehearse some of these thoughts in our minds, the fact that, that the, the gospel of Christ, that the strength of Christ was present in the Old Testament, it was pre pre presented as the strength of God's mercy, especially through his word and the doctrine of justification by faith alone or the idea of faith laying hold of this power of Christ and the fact that, uh, that, that the reformers survived despite their pummeling and uh, despite Knox, as soon as he believed, it looked like his life was over and yet the Lord preserved him, the Lord, the Lord prospered him, the Lord gave him a whole country. Today we look back and we say, oh, why couldn't, why didn't God uh, give uh, France to the Huguenots like he did uh, Switzerland to Calvin or Scotland? To, to Knox, but God did His own good pleasure, and He gave these He gave some real uh, worldly victories to these men through their preaching, through their living for Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray for our day. We pray that we might have another awakening, like we saw in the 1500s. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might see the power of thine arm flexed once again in our day. We pray that we might, when we see it, be reminded of days gone past when thou didst work in the hearts and the minds of people like today. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray under this work and under this hope. Amen.